0: Good morning. This is Matt O'Neill again uh, from Goldman Sachs Payments and IT Service. Uh, I'm very pleased to be joined by Sachin Mera, uh, CFO of MasterCard. Um, so, you know, Sachin, without further ado, and, you know, not, not too, too far off the, uh, the heels of earnings, um, you know, first and foremost, thanks for joining. Um, but, you know, I figure we just dig right in on the competitive front. And, you know, if you could give us that recap um, of, you know, some of the recent and notable wins, and how you expect some of them to be, uh, you know, implemented uh, and, and what people are always most curious about, which I think is you know, the whys and, and the hows of, you know, how a MasterCard wins, you know, any particular deal. Obviously, no need to name names uh, or otherwise, but really helping all of us understand those virtues of what, what sort of differentiates, uh, you know, a, a MasterCard in, in that type of a scenario.
1: Okay, sure. No, first of all, thank you for having me, Matt. Uh, Good morning to everybody, and um, I appreciate the opportunity to be here today. Um, To your specific question, Matt, um, here's what I would tell you. We've always operated in a fairly competitive environment, and that is not going to change. It hasn't changed. That will continue to be the case on a going-forward basis. What's important for us in such an environment is to drive differentiation. And we drive differentiation through multiple factors, right? I mean, it's everything from our digital capabilities to what we bring from a services capability standpoint, as well as our multi-rail strategy. So we see uh, that that message, by and large, resonates very nicely with uh, our existing customers, but also prospective customers. And, you know, the message resonating is one part. Proof points is the other part. And it's when you can demonstrate proof points is when people feel like, yeah, this is the partner we want to work with. Our philosophy is very much one of let's not make this transactional, let's make this a partnership opportunity, let's help you, the customer, drive top line growth. Because candidly, when I think about it from a customer standpoint, a customer flipping from one brand to the other brand in terms of our core propositions is net neutral to them unless you're able to drive better performance of the existing portfolio, unless you're able to bring them a set of capabilities which helps them broaden their consumer appeal, so on and so forth, which is what our differentiated assets do. And so that's kind of the overriding theme in the competitive environment as to how we are trying to drive forward um, in terms of trying to win more than our fair share. Will we win every single time? The answer is no. We would like to win more often than not. And clearly over the last few years, um, that's been the case. Um, More specifically, in the fourth quarter, as we've kind of talked through this, we shared with you some recent big wins, and we've been doing this sequentially over multiple quarters, but in the fourth quarter, we talked about the win which we had with NatWest, and, you know, that's a fairly sizable portfolio, 16 million cards, uh, debit cards. The debit market's been a tough market to break in into the UK. With the recent wins we've had um, in the UK between NatWest, Santander, which we had previously announced, uh, First Direct, there have been a several wins which we've announced, um, once all of those migrations are complete, uh, we would expect that about a third of the debit market would be MasterCard branded as part of that process. Now, specifically as it relates to NatWest, um, we expect the conversions to start later this year. They will happen on expiry of existing cards, so it will be an extended period over which the conversions will take place. But net, 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 when I sit back and I think about it, yes, we love the fact that we're going to get 16 million new MasterCard branded debit cards, super important, but what we equally appreciate is the opportunity to be able to bring our whole suite of services capabilities, multi-real strategy to that customer and other customers as well. The other deal we spoke about was Deutsche Bank, um, which again is not insignificant, right? Ten million cards across consumer and commercial, across credit and debit, Um, and I would say the same three attributes in terms of the partnership approach, leveraging our capabilities across multiple areas, has been a fairly significant uh, enabler. And again, the Deutsche Bank conversion should start later this year as well. So we feel like we're in a good rhythm. And those were the ones we spoke about in the context of Europe. Europe's not the only place in which we're having these wins, man. We've had this come through in the context of the uh, Citiplex with Google Pay uh, deal, which we won. Again, we're bringing our tokenization capabilities, our digital debit capabilities to bear there. Um, Clearly something which has been... um, something we've been kind of focused on as an organization globally, and we're bringing it to bear here in this particular deal. The last one I'll mention is Walgreens, uh, not insignificant. Big Player uh, has very serious aspirations which go beyond just core payments and we will certainly be helping them with a credit proposition partnering with Synchrony Bank, but also a prepaid proposition, but extend that further into loyalty and rewards. And again, we bring our services, all our loyalty and rewards, to be able to, Participate and help win in that cause. So that's kind of the overriding basis with which we are operating in the market today.
0: Uh, that's a, that's helpful. Really good summary there. Um, on a related note, and you know, a- absent guidance, uh, you know, rebates and incentives, right? The contra revenue line has always been a, a very hard line for the buy and sell side to, to forecast. Um, you know, how, how do we think about kind of parsing the dynamics of, you know, the the long-term obvious positive of, of wins uh, offset by what could be short-term, you know, upfront either incentive payments or uh, shared sort of conversion fees, uh, expenses or otherwise, um, you know, versus the more stable, uh, you know, side of, of, of that contra revenue line item, which is predicated on sort of large, uh, issuers hitting, you know, sort of volume-based tiers um, on an ongoing basis, or not, as is, you know, presumably on the case in some instances throughout the pandemic, where volumes have, you know, uh, compressed.
1: Yeah, so I, I think the first thing I'd say on rebates and incentives is we've had a strong pipeline of deals, both renewals and new deals, which have been kind of uh, in action. Some have culminated into wins, which we've spoken about. Um, there are other wins which have taken place, which we don't necessarily make public. Uh, we expect that strong pipeline of deal activity to continue on a going-forward basis, both from a renewal standpoint as well as new deals. Uh, so kind of that's the overriding um, thing which I would put out there for people to to be aware about. It's a competitive marketplace, and we have every intention to compete. Uh, and that's why we're going to be focused on making sure we're uh, uh, you know, staying relevant in terms of having a strong pipeline. More specifically, what I did share at the earnings call, uh, the last earnings call, was that for the first quarter of 2021 we expect rebates and incentives as a percentage of gross revenues uh, to be flat or up slightly sequentially compared to Q4 of last year. so that's the kind of the extent of what, what, what we wanted to kind of put out there for people to just generally get a sense on how all of this plays out but philosophically speaking I, I'll tell you yes volumes impact um, impact rebates and incentives um, the activity deal activity impacts it. Um, the mix between what the recovery on domestic versus cross-border is going to impact it. We're less indexed to rebates and incentives on cross-border than we are on domestic. Um, and, you know, there's this, this point which you made around the tiering effect. As volumes start to ratchet up or ratchet down, you have the tiering effect take place in rebates uh, because people hit new thresholds, and, uh, and new thresholds on the way up could be a higher amount of rebates and incentives and new thresholds on the way down if volumes decline, would be lower incentive. So you've got to keep that in mind. It's hard to call because not every deal is identical. In fact, most deals are just not identical. But those are considerations to keep in mind. The last piece I'll mention is, you know, when you do a conversion or you do, you know, upfront payments for new deals that you win, you have a fixed component which will amortize over the the, the, the life of the deal independent of what volumes are. And so that factors in in a increasing Volume environment, right? The component of fixed as a percentage of total gross by definition will be a smaller component and then vice versa in a declining environment. So that's what I would share with you from a rebates incentive standpoint, man. Um, Again, very hard to give you a longer term kind of view on this, but I, I think those are the things to kind of keep an eye on. Yeah, no, that's really
0: helpful. There's, there's obviously a lot of vectors, uh, at, at play. And I think it's always right. when you get the, the big wins, which are, of course, uh, you know, great, great headlines and understood for the long term, understanding the, the, the short term puts and takes around it, you know, and obviously absent guidance it would be that uh, much harder to, <laughs> to, to triangulate right. all, all those points. So, um, no, that, that, that's great. Um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, the, the networks have become this, this, uh, this apex of understanding, you know, all things pandemic as far as, uh, you know, case counts, uh, vaccinations, sort of uh, glide paths, border reopening, sort of horizon. And you guys have spoken uh, and been very helpful talking about the, 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 the sort of vast kind of variation across the globe, whether it's you know, the relatively open kind of Mexico to the very closed, you know, UK or New Zealand for you know various reasons, right, as we just sort of jump around. Um, you know, w- w- what's the latest? I know we're not that far off of earnings. We talked about this a lot yeah. during during earnings, but, you know, h- how are we thinking about the glide path from, you know, vaccines starting to get deployed to the ultimate, you know, goal of either the world's back to normal if it, if it ever is, but as far as, you know, what's most important to, to MasterCard, which is really getting that that cross-border traveler, you know, physically uh, out of their home country and, and into a, a nice tourist destination or, or otherwise and uh, doing some, some spend there.
1: Yeah, so look, first I'll, I'll just touch upon, um, so we shared, less. Uh, actually today is Wednesday, approximately two weeks ago is when we had our earnings call, and um, we shared with you our metrics through the first three weeks of January, and I would tell you since January 21 you know, the metrics are generally in line with what we shared with you at the earnings call. So, you know, there's, you know, nothing new to share with you per se in terms of big changes in uh, in terms of those trends. Um, But more specifically, I I think we should break this up into two parts. There's what's going on in the domestic spend environment and what's going on in the cross-border environment, and what are the factors which influence one versus the other. And if you take domestic spend and you parse out domestic spend, by, you know, what happens to be travel-related and then what happens to be non-travel-related, I would tell you, by and large, and I'm generalizing, every market is different, that the non-travel-related domestic spend is it's working just fine. Things are working well. You know, there's good growth rates, which we're seeing there. Um, and candidly, you know, in markets like the U.S., which, is, uh, which are being benefited by stimulus payments, you know, you see the benefit of that come through in terms of increased levels of spend, as you saw in the first three-week metrics we showed you for for the U.S. The flip side of that is um, let's take a market like Europe, where there have been increased lockdowns since the middle of December. They've persisted through January. And, you know, the reality is I don't know how long those lockdowns will stay in place, but it's had an impact to the adverse uh, in terms of domestic spend levels there as well, as it has on cross-border. And so let's talk a little bit about cross-border because I think – the operative question on people's mind is, when will we see travel recover? And uh, and in some cases, people are asking, will we see travel recover? Our view is, we think travel comes back. What we're watching closely for is a few things. One, the pace with which vaccines are being delivered and distributed. Look, I, the one thing I will say is, we've all taken for granted that we have effective vaccines. You know, rewind back, you know, six months ago, there was the jury was still out as to whether we have an effective vaccine or not. So the good news is we've kind of moved from there to seeing, well, there's not one, but there are multiple effective vaccines. Now it's a question of rolling them out, getting them to the right destinations in a timely manner and administrating them in a manner which allows people to feel comfortable to take them. We see that as a path which is underway. We're keeping a close eye in terms of how that plays out. And then related to that will be what happens from a border opening standpoint, because just administering vaccines and not having borders open doesn't get cross-border travel to happen. So we're watching that as well. It's our expectation that towards the latter half of this year, we're going to start to see some of that come through. Um, And the reality is we think personal travel uh, comes back before business travel does. Um, Just for perspective, for MasterCard, and we've shared this information previously, but I think it's important to kind of dimension what all this means. Uh, For the year 2019, we had said that of our total cross-border volumes, roughly half of our cross-border volumes are card-present and roughly half are card-not-present. And then of the half which are card-not-present, about a third are travel-related. And the reason I'm giving you this dimensioning is because if you believe that card-present gets impacted by your inability to travel, you know, there's a fairly decent-sized exposure which is there to travel period full stop between card-present and the component of card-not-present which is travel-related. So, and, oh, by the way, roughly 85% of, that, of those components of travel, which I've just described, happens to be personal travel. So that's an important consideration, right? Um, and we think it comes back. We think it comes back when vaccines come at scale, when borders open. Um, you know, I can't tell you the month. I can't tell you the week. What I can tell you is we're closely watching it. What I can tell you is there have been proof points uh, in corridors such as the U.S. and Mexico, to your point, where... When border restrictions haven't been there, people have actually gone ahead and, and done the travel. In fact, before the lockdowns took place in Europe in the middle of December, we saw accelerated intra-Europe travel take place there as well. So all of these are early signals to us saying people want to get out there and do stuff. The other question which people ask is what's going to happen from a business travel standpoint? Look, I I, I I will tell you, ultimately I believe that business travel will come back. It's just going to take a little bit longer. I think people Well, um, and the reality is, just to be clear, if people start to travel on their personal accord, it's going to be very hard for them to say, I don't want to do business travel. Because how do you walk into work and say, I just did a trip with my family, but I'm not willing to take a business trip? Um, And and so I start to see that kind of coming through as well over a period of time. Yeah, I guess
0: the only pushback there would be on... The, the sort of T and E expense line, which was going to be kind of my next area of question, not just on T and E and you know, but more broadly expenses for Mastercard. There's been some you know you know windfalls uh, you know to corporates broadly as far as you know their employees not traveling, uh, and and we'll see how to your point on business travel recovering maybe at a, a little bit less of that pent up demand uh, fashion going forward. Uh, But how's MasterCard thinking about expenses more broadly? Um, You know, T&E being one one component, obviously, advertising and marketing, another large one. We've seen the ability to kind of flex those expense muscles, uh, you know, for MasterCard uh, pretty impressively over the last couple of quarters. And so, um, you know, how how are you thinking about allocating and, 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 and investing strategically on the on the offensive coming out here?
1: Yeah. So you're right. You know, look, we've always maintained that we're going to be disciplined from an expense standpoint, and we've demonstrated that in 2020. We will continue to remain disciplined on going-forward basis. We manage and drive our expenses um, with an eye towards the long term, and we haven't lost that focus even through this COVID crisis. Uh, in fact, what we've done is, yes, you're right, T&E, by, by definition, people are not traveling, so I get the benefit of lower T&E expense within the MasterCard expense line. But then there are several other areas in which – We have reprioritized and said, this is not currently in favor with our customers. So take something like um, in the loyalty side of what we do, if that's primarily oriented towards travel and travel is not in favor, I'm not going to put a whole bunch of money into loyalty at this point in time. I'm going to actually pivot that money towards digital, towards services, towards multi-rail, which is in demand, right? And and so we've done that, and we've done that in a nimble manner. We will continue to do that on a going forward basis. When travel comes back, we will put energy back behind doing things on the loyalty front, for example, using my example there. You know, yes, we've also scaled down on a m The reality is we're going to come back and do more on the AM front, uh, much like we used to do in the pre-COVID days. But we will be smart about it, keeping an eye on how the top line is shaping up, right? That is super important for us um, as part of exercising the discipline from an overall OPEX management standpoint. That
0: makes sense. The the other area, I think, that has investors probably kind of most excited, as as you know, we are hopefully looking back on this as a you know a finite period of time through the pandemic, is um, you know effectively what what the what the pandemic has done to catalyze the long term secular shift, right, to electronic payments, both online, uh, you know, contactless, electronic, you know, etc. Um, where, where are you seeing the pockets and how are you, you know, kind of studying what may be more sticky uh, effectively uh, as, as we come out of this? And as people presumably hopefully are able to get back into both domestic brick and mortar, cross-border brick and mortar, et cetera, um, kind of going forward uh, for the long term?
1: Yeah, to us, to, to the, the sustainability of some of the trends we've seen through the COVID period is a function of habit. And experience, and by experience, I mean consumer experience or merchant experience. And, and look, it's our view that the accelerated trend we saw um, towards digital forms of payment, right? E-commerce and card not present, generally speaking, through the COVID environment, uh, for the most part will stay. That's not to say that people will not go back into stores and, uh, and do in-person purchases. I, I think that will happen as well. But what people have done is they've started to build muscle memory as it relates to hey, look, this whole e-commerce experience is a pretty nice experience. We like it. For certain categories of spend, we will keep that going. In fact, some of the surveys we've done suggest that, you know, 70% of the respondents basically said they plan to continue or increase their e-commerce purchases coming out of the COVID environment, right? So we've kind of done surveys. Time will tell whether that kind of plays out to 70% or some other number. But by and large, I would tell you, People have started to experience from a consumer standpoint the value of the digital transaction. Similarly, on the merchant side, there were several merchants who used to in the past hold out to us going channel Well, they've been compelled to go omni-channel. Their survival has been, you know, based on being able to now go both in the in-person environment and an e-commerce environment. And why would I shut that down if I were a merchant? I would I would enable both on a going forward basis to maximize the sales coming out of COVID as well. So I think those are here to stay. Those are things which will help us from an overall secular shift standpoint even coming out of COVID. The next next theme we think about is use, the usage of cash in the in-person environment, right? And, I mean, it's very clear there are two factors which I kind of think about when I think about usage of cash. One is COVID has put the fear of God into people as it relates to why should I touch cash? I don't really need to touch cash, so let's stay away from that, which is why you're seeing an acceleration and contactless payments take place, even in the in-store environment. Uh, And then also generationally, you will see that as the the millennials, the Gen Ys or Zs, I forget which one they are, but the reality is my kids, let's just call them that, right? They all come into (laughs) – when they come into the – the shopping experience, they can't be bothered with touching cash. And really, that's a key seller from our perspective, which was there even pre-COVID, candidate. But just with the passage of time, you're going to see that we very much persist. Now, I've spoken very much around consumer. we are seeing the same trends, by the way, come through on uh, the B2B side. Have they resulted in meaningful shifts in volume and in revenue experience? Not yet. And by that, I mean you're seeing increased dialogue and demand for moving away from cash and check to electronic forms of payment in the B2B environment. However, the ecosystem is not completely ready to handle that mass shift which has taken place. The consumer side of the business had moved further along in that. And we're seeing a lot of impetus to drive down that path, which is why we're accelerating our B2B strategy with MasterCard Track as part of um, what we think will sustain over the longer term. The last piece I'll mention is around services. What COVID has taught us is... um, there's a much greater appreciation by our client base for what we bring from a services standpoint. And, you know, it's everything from our cyber intelligence tools, data insights and analytics. And we can talk a lot more about this if you have any interest in it um, in terms of, you know, the value we can bring to them in these hard times to help them best optimize their, their revenue streams and their cost base, uh, which we expect will sustain going forward. No, that,
0: that, that, that's really helpful. Yeah. Um, Let's see, I guess, yeah, I definitely do want to touch back on some of the B2B uh, dynamics, um, but I, I was curious, um, you know, maybe we could talk a little bit um, uh, next about open banking and the acquisition of Finicity and and kind of how open banking, you know, fits in with MasterCard and MasterCard strategy, because I don't know that it's, it's immediately apparent kind of for, for all uh, in, in the ecosystem, but kind of how, how you envision MasterCard
1: uh, playing in, in that in that world uh, going forward. Yeah, we're very excited about the prospects in the open banking space. You know, we've been involved in the space even prior to the acquisition of Finicity with the work we've been doing primarily in Europe, uh, where we've been building out capabilities and we've had some level of success there. Uh, we love what we're getting uh, through the acquisition of Finicity. Uh, we think we think about open banking, and I'll get into the specifics of Finicity in a second, but we think about open banking as a tremendous opportunity because we almost think about this as a parallel network to enable the free flow of data um, between consumers, uh, which happens to be residing with their banks, by the way, and, you know, technology providers, app providers, FinTech providers who wish to deliver them services in that regard, right? And so, what do, what do I mean by that? What is the use case? How do I make this a little bit more tangible for people? Let's just take Finicity, right? Think about open banking across three layers. There's the infrastructure, which is the connectivity, which Finicity brings by connecting to thousands of banks in the in the environment. Then there's the application layer, and then there's the services layer, right? So what Finicity brings is a foundational capability of some best-in-class connectivity with, you know, Thousands of banks in the US. They have, and it's important that you connect in the right way. Connecting in the right way means having data sharing agreements. Connecting in the right way means ensuring that you're getting consumer consent for the usage of that data for the purpose with which they're consenting, right? Connecting in the right way means ensuring that there's data privacy and security which is being applied to the information which is there. All of which are principles which Finicity shares, which are very common to MasterCard's principles. We've signed numerous data-sharing agreements with some of the largest banks in in the U.S. They include, you know, J.P. Morgan, Citi, Capital One, Wells, you name it, Bank of America. They're all with data-sharing agreements. What that effectively means is it's with the consent of the bank that we are enabling this as opposed to through screen scraping, and that's very important. Because to create a long term sustainable model to gain access to data, to create that parallel data network, uh, needs to be done in the right way and that's what these guys do. At the application layer, these guys have built a bunch of really valuable credit decisioning and credit scoring applications and that's just a starting point. So where they focused initially was what can we do from a credit decisioning, credit scoring standpoint by leveraging information to gain access to verification of income, verification of employment, verification of assets. They've been very tailored and focused on the mortgage industry. Um, They have clients, for example, like Quicken Loans. On the the credit scoring side, they've got clients like Experian who leverage the capabilities that Finacity brings. So when you take that same use case of credit decisioning and credit scoring and apply it to the small business community, well, guess what? Banks would absolutely love the ability to get information in an electronic format to allow for more swift and more accurate credit decisioning and credit scoring to take place. That's just one use case. Verification of bank accounts, that's the other use case. And so we see tremendous potential. um, But Finicity is beyond just the U.S., right? I mean, yeah, sure, they've got a fantastic footprint in the U.S., but our ability to take the applications they've created and apply them to the connectivity we've built in Europe is the other piece which we feel very good about. And then you can go into other markets in a similar manner, right? And then the last layer is services, and what is the level of services that you can provide? on that. So we think by and large if you think about the open banking space, we're very bullish on it. We think it's um, it's a great opportunity and it's one frankly which is it's here to stay and we feel we're very well positioned to to partake in that.
0: Understood. Um, on the fourth quarter call, uh, you noted I believe that the service lines collectively represented about a third of MasterCard's revenue in 2020. Um, yeah, this has been an area that MasterCard's, I think, excelled at for yeah, probably decades now, right? I mean, MasterCard Advisors has been around for, for many, many years. Um, uh, and it, you've built many acquisitions and, and internal uh, builds on top of that. So can you talk about this service strategy, kind of you know, what, what it brings to the table and how, how it really helps differentiate MasterCard?
1: Yeah. So I, I, we got into services because we felt this is back to your first question around how do you create a competitive edge? create a competitive edge by providing something which is different, right? So we want to drive differentiation at the core, which is why services are important to us, right? We want to drive uh, a revenue engine, which is growing at a faster pace than the core. Again, that's what services delivers. And the third piece is to drive a level of diversification in our revenue streams, which oh, by the way, 2020 has proven to be the case because we said it represents a third of our revenue and it grew at 18% in 2020, and to grow at 18% in a year, which is a tough year, I, I would say, again, you, know, you guys will decide whether it, it's good, bad, or ugly. The reality is we feel very proud about the fact that what services does is drives these three things for us, which is diversification, differentiation, and growing at a, uh, revenues at a faster pace than the core. The strategy is important to understand in the context of what sits in that services portfolio. So we have cyber and intelligence tools. Fraud is a very prominent theme which is here to stay. There's going to be fraud, there's going to be issues around, um, you know, authenticating people, and we bring a set of services out there which are really valuable, and I can go into the specifics of that. The second piece is around data and analytics, and this is around providing data insights, it's about consulting, like you said, it's around managed services, those kind of pieces. Then there's loyalty and rewards, we touched upon that earlier, and then there's our processing assets. There are a few other things which kind of will will form the services portfolio, but the reality is this is the crux of what sits in that services portfolio. And we're seeing tremendous demand for um, loyalty and rewards has been a a little bit challenged in this COVID environment, but prior to that it was going at a very healthy clip. But other than that, for the others there's been a tremendous amount of demand which we've seen come through even through 2020. So let's take cyber intelligence, the fraud tools, right? Our strategy out there is how do we identify fraud before it happens and try and put a stop to it so that's what we call you you kind of are doing the the, even before fraud happens how do we pick it up. Not everything will be picked up so how do you detect it while fraud is happening that's kind of the second pillar. The third pillar is okay well you didn't pick you didn't identify it before you didn't detect it while it was happening how do you resolve fraud after it occurred. So this is the whole chargeback process and things of that sort, right? And it's all those three pillars that we're focused on while delivering a a good user experience. And there's a whole set of capabilities through organic build as well as through acquisitions that we have, which are moving and and delivering in a very apt manner. I'll move to the data and services piece. And there it's more about how do we discover what we might be able to deliver in in, in the nature of value to our customers. And what do I mean by discover? Let's use data insights and analytics to identify what might be areas of opportunity for our customers. So that's the discover piece. Then there's the second piece, which is how do you make recommendations to them through consulting as to what they can do to improve what might be areas for improvement. Then and that we do that as well, which is the consulting piece. Then there's the third piece. How do you make them act or how do you deliver and execute for them? on the consulting advice you just gave them, and that's the managed services piece. So it's a whole full suite of products, and that doesn't mean every time we sell our data data and services capabilities, we'll do all three. Some customers want all three of them, others want just one piece, and they want to take care of the other two themselves, and we're doing a lot of that as part of how we're driving growth on services. Um, Look, I mean, I think from an opportunity set standpoint, people ask, well, what's the runway with services on a going forward basis? And I think the runway is to be thought about in the context of how we've rolled out in the past. We started up uh, on services primarily focused on the U.S. and Europe, primarily focused on the issuing side of the equation. Well, that game has changed. We're not only doing a bunch in the U.S. and Europe, but it's actually global. LAC, AP, MIA, all over the place. And so the client base happens to be that issuing side of the equation. But then we've proliferated that over to the acquiring side, and then to the merchant community. And we've been able to do that because the set of capabilities we have can actually service that entire set of capabilities. I'd say there's a tremendous amount of runway with our existing set of capabilities to be able to penetrate a customer base which still remains to be penetrated across issuing, acquiring, and and merchants. And then we will keep adding to that services portfolio to further broaden the. So the runway is pretty meaningful, and everything I've spoken about right now relates to the card rails. You transpose that same thinking over to what we're doing on the multi-rail side and the ability to deliver capabilities from a services standpoint. We think that engine uh, has, has a decent amount of potential there as well.
0: No, that, that's helpful. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot under the hood within services uh, increasingly right. over time. So uh, really, really helpful to understand how it all sort of ties together. Um, one area we've been getting a lot of questions on from the investment community, and there's been you know a lot of new kind of entrance into the space and pretty profound growth rates is the whole uh, buy now pay later space. I think there's some misconceptions out there, um, you know, about it being kind of a threat or an opportunity, is it competition? Um, you know, un- understanding that a lot of transactions are ultimately back funded. if not the majority of them, overwhelming majority, by card based products. So, now, how does Mastercard, you know, sort of think about buy now pay later broadly?
1: Yeah. We, we think about buy now, pay later as an opportunity if done the right way. And, um, and that's what we've been doing. We've been involved in, you know, what we call installment payments for some time. We've been enabling our installment capabilities with our issuing partners, our acquiring partners, and the merchants, right, to provide pre-purchase financing at the point of sale financing and then post-purchase financing. And we do that by getting our capabilities out uh, through our network partners be able to allow them to offer consumers that installment capability. Um, we will not be in the business of utilizing our balance sheet to extend credit as part of That's not our game. That's not where we are. We are the engine which will enable partners who want to lend to be able to do that. Consumers should have choice. They should have the choice to be able to borrow on a credit card. They should have the choice to be able to do a buy now pay later option and we will support that and have been supporting that across the board. I, I think the right way comment of mine came from uh, from the perspective of it's important to understand that, and you've seen this actually in the UK where regulators are saying we would like to see the buy now pay later space be regulated just like banks are regulated. So sure. I think it's it's important that you know how this gets done and how people take exposures onto their balance sheet. Right? Who are the lenders? Um, you got to keep perspective on all of that, and I'm not saying that every market is going to be like the UK. What I am saying is that, you know, the opportunity will be there, we will provide the choice. We have partnered, for example, with Splitit. We have partnered with Afterpay, back to your point, around leveraging card card rails, right, to allow for this pay and 4 capability, but we also partnered with the Pine Labs of the world in India, which we're now taking out into Southeast Asia. where we, they are leveraging our capabilities and our rails to enable installment payments. So clearly an opportunity. Um, we should be involved, and we will be involved. We've done that through partnerships. We've done that through acquisitions. And, uh, and, and the acquisition I'm alluding to is Vice, which was a small acquisition we made you know, a year and, and some ago. But, but we think about this as something to stay on top of, but needs to get done the right way.
0: Understood. Um, turning to the multi-rail strategy, can you give an update on the progress with account to account flows? Um, remind us about the, uh, you know, the opportunity that the Nets transaction brings us. Um, uh, and yes, you know, probably a question we could spend another hour on if we expand it to vocal length, the broader B2B opportunities, et cetera. But
1: uh, I'll leave it a little open-ended, uh, you know. To okay. Get so, so let me just kind of explain why we are pursuing a multi-rail strategy. Why did MasterCard go down that path? Because we believe we are unique and differentiated in that regard, and we think it's the right thing for us to do. It's all about how do you tackle the addressable market, which you believe is appropriate for you to tackle. You'll remember at the Investor Day, which we had you know, a year and some ago, we had defined find a huge addressable market across B2M, B2B, B2C, so on and so forth. So right? um, I, I don't think it's realistic to assume that card rails will be able to go after that address, addressable market. It, it's just not. You need to be involved in payment flows which go well beyond cards, which comes to ACH. Then you say, okay, if you're going to be involved in ACH, you won't be involved in the best-in-class technology for ACH, which is real-time ACH capability. So that's why we went multi-rail. And the way we think about executing that strategy is um, executing on the infrastructure level, the applications and services. And when I say infrastructure, it's about—it's very similar to what we do on the card side. We we fight every day to win switching share. Switching share different from debit and credit share. So said differently, we might have non-switched Mastercard branded transactions, and you know we do in several parts of the world. We try and get that to be switched over our network. That happens to be the equivalent of what we're trying to do on infrastructure and in real time payments. And we have executed on that. We are now the real time. Um, service provider in 12 of the top 50 GDP countries. Uh, that's that's by design, that is it's not like we've chased every possible RFP, we've chased the ones which are really important which will bring size and scale and the most recent one being winning the real-time mandate in Canada uh, and we've obviously won in the Nordics and we have won in, in the Philippines so on and so forth. So we're executing on that but that is not the end game. The end game is you need to be in the flow which is what this infrastructure is, to deliver effectively applications and services. And on the application front, the areas where we're making more and more strides are everything from pay-by-bank in the U.K., which, oh, by the way, with our partnerships with HSBC and Barclays, uh, we are going to enable, I think, and Warren will keep me honest here, uh, a third of the mobile users in the U.K. will be enabled through our pay-by-bank uh, capabilities. Um, and likewise, we're building out the merchant community on that. Right. Uh, similarly, bill pay. We think a big use case in the ACA space is bill payments. And uh, through our bill pay exchange in the, in, in the US, we see the opportunity as being fairly significant. We have about a third of bill presenters in the US now, um, we have access to those bills in our bill pay exchange, and about 25% of consumers who make bill payments, uh, have access. To, we have access to them through bill pay exchange. So those are two examples of applications. But the long game out here is to keep building out applications, including cross-border applications, as part of what we want to do here. The third uh, piece is services. I talked about this a little bit earlier, which is everything we were doing on card rails. How do we take that and deliver it on multi-rail, and multi-rail being the ACH piece? Look, if you're not in the infrastructure, it's very hard to deliver services and applications. How do you do data analytics if you're not in the flow? How do you deliver fraud products if you're not in the flow? right? And that's the thinking and the strategy behind going multi-rail. Providing choice is what we stand for. We're not in the business of telling people you must use only card rails. We're in the business of addressing their payment needs across multiple rails, which is where this real-time ACH strategy comes. The second question you asked about NETS and where does NETS fit into all of this? Look, NETS comes with a set of really good capabilities. on the application side, they're a very prominent player in the bill payment space. We like that. They've got a tremendous ability in Europe, and we believe that we can leverage that capability in other markets across the globe. Similarly, on the infrastructure side, they bring a what I would call a more flexible version of infrastructure, um, which is suitable to lots of markets which have you know, what I would call plain validity needs, not very customized needs from a real-time payment standpoint. So it allows us more of a fit-for-purpose model from a real-time perspective to be able to drive that forward. So that's kind of where we're going. We think this, this is the right approach, right strategy um, to, to drive the multi-real strategy.
0: Well, that, that, that's very helpful. On um, last earnings call, I think uh, Michael uh, spoke to plans to add digital currency support to the network later this year. Um, and obviously, you know, crypto and blockchain technology has gotten a ton of attention of late given the, the meteoric rise in some of these some of these currencies, you know, can, can you talk about the sort of nuts and bolts and, and how that's going to work and, and your view more broadly on, on cryptocurrency?
1: Sure. So I, I'm going to, Matt, take that in the following kind of vein. I'm going to call it a digital currency, and then I'm going to say the subset of that might be the equivalent of a non-asset-backed digital currency, which I'll call crypto for a second, and then an asset-backed digital currency, which I'll call stable coins, which are backed by fiat currency, and or central bank issued digital currencies, right? And I think it's important because um, when you think about digital currencies, one of them, which is the non-asset backed digital currency, call it crypto, is an asset class. It's not a payment vehicle as far as we're concerned. The second one, which is backed by fiat currency and central bank digital currencies, could be a payment vehicle going forward. And we will stay involved in both of those, right? Um, so how are we involved? What are we doing to stay involved in, in both of these? And actually, not only stay involved, but act, uh, we're, we're providing some fairly valuable capabilities across the board. Let's take the first category, which is the non-asset-backed cryptocurrencies. So MasterCard today has enabled our, uh, our cards are used to buy and sell that asset class called non-asset-backed um, cryptocurrency. There's no store of value in it, so the value fluctuates just like asset values fluctuate, but you can use your debit card or your credit card to buy your your cryptos to the extent you so choose to. We've been doing that for a while. We're seeing tremendous growth in that space. We'll continue to stay in more. In that same asset class, right? what we're also doing is we're leveraging our acceptance footprint to allow you as a consumer who might have a cryptocurrency sitting in your in your wallet with your crypto wallet to be able to use that at the point of sale. Right to gain access to it we don't do the the exchange from crypto to fiat, but we facilitate the use of fiat currency at our acceptance point of sales there. so that's kind of um, that and we've got numerous agreements in that regard which are already in play uh, and we'll continue to do more and more of those because people want to be able to use that asset class to make payments at the point of sale. The second category, which is what I call stable coins and/ or central bank issued digital currencies, we have plans to enable those regulation permitting across our network. So in other words, take delivery of those stable coins and to allow the, the settlement of those stable coins for the, with those merchants who wish to be settling in those stable coins on a going forward basis. So We are enabling our network to allow for that to happen yet this year. That's very much part and parcel of what we've been focused on. Um, we think the opportunity exists we want to be present there we will be present there the last piece i'll mention is central bank digital currencies there are central banks who are looking to issue cbdcs we can bring technology we have we are the leader one of the leaders in terms of the patents we have developed in terms of dlt um, and how we can help them at the infrastructure level and or the application and services level is something we remain engaged with on numerous fronts with several central banks so so it's, it's a space to keep an eye on. I think it will ebb and flow depending on, you know, what the flavor of the day is as it relates to cryptos. We've seen run-ups in crypto prices in the past. But broadly speaking, the use of digital le- uh, ledger technology is something we, we will remain focused on.
0: Uh, that, that's really helpful, especially separating out the, the, the different sort of subsets uh, w- within the broader kind of uh, group and, and how and where you guys okay. will play. Um, understanding we're already a, a minute or two over time here, I, maybe I'll squeeze one last one in uh, as much as I would love to get through the rest of my list and a few of the uh, the inbounds I've gotten while we, we've been chatting. Um, but could you just, um, and again, I know it's not far off of earnings, uh, but just sort of remind the group again on the M&A priorities and approach to capital allocation uh, particularly, you know, at this point, uh, given pandemic and, and, you know, where you're at as far as the assets you have on hand today, you know, what maybe is, you know, not under the umbrella that, that you're most focused on or interested in?
1: Look, our m strategy remains unchanged um, right through this pandemic. It's remained unchanged and our overall capital allocation priorities remain unchanged. We will invest. Our um, our resources into the growth of this business, the long term growth of this business. We'll do it through organic means, and we'll do it through M and A where M M&A makes sense. Um, in terms of areas of priority, um, I, I would tell you, by and large, our focus has been on you know the multi rail area, on the services area, on B two B. It's what I call new and emerging, and the reason it's logical uh, for us to get involved in those spaces is because, you know you typically end up doing MA for a few reasons. One, how do you get faster to market? Because everything, theoretically, everything can get built by you. The question really is, can you get to market faster because somebody has you know, uh, the technology already built? That's one element. Or somebody already has connectivity built to the ecosystem. And to the extent that makes sense and we find the right target at the right price, we will stay engaged on that. That is the right thing for us to do, and we'll continue to do that. The last piece I'll mention capital allocation is, and to the extent then, after we've invested back into the organic and inorganic piece of our business, we have excess cash, we'll return it back to our shareholders in the form of, with a bias towards, you know, share buybacks. Uh, and that's very consistent with what we've said in the past.
0: Yeah, very much. Well, well, Sachin, I really appreciate the time today. It's always a pleasure digging on uh, the business here. Um, but uh, given that we're at time, I will, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll let it stop there. But, but thanks very much again.
1: Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me on. Absolutely. Look forward to speaking again
0: soon. Take care.